is Bloomberg Surveillance. Broadly speaking, gasoline is not going to be sufficient enough to support the whole refining complex. It's a general concern that central banks really don't have a lot left that they can do. We're not seeing a weak consumer, but we're not necessarily seeing consumers spend those savings that they're getting from lower energy prices. But the fact is, they don't have to. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen in this hour. Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, a bombshell speech yesterday. We'll get to that uh, quickly here in a moment. The Forex Brief this morning brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex uh, yields higher off of interesting economic data at 8.30 and 15 minutes. We have industrial production. Futures advance up 13 now, up 18. Dow futures up 143. And the foreign exchange, the yen weaker, 114.26. Uh, Euro churned dollar strength uh, this morning. We're blaming that on the Minneapolis Fed uh, today. In Mexican peso, dollar peso. I've been watching 18.76 on dollar uh, a peso. Mike, uh, I, I want you to bring in our next uh, guest, but we need to point out that an aerospace engineer wandering into the halls of Ph.D. economics in Minneapolis is a most interesting and twisted <laughs> mathematics. Well, and uh, you know, Neil Kashkari's call for breaking up uh, the banks yesterday. David Wessel was there. He runs the, the, the group at Brookings who moderated yesterday's event. He says, this isn't what you get from a Goldman Sachs Republican normally. Uh, Neil used to work at, at Goldman. Let's stand it on its head. We obviously want to talk to you about breaking up the banks, but you've been t- uh, making that case um, yeah, many places over the last 24 hours. Let's, let me ask you about the economy <coughs> and the markets. Um, you're a former markets guy. So how much attention do you pay to what's going on? Are they telling, are they signaling something about the economy or are they reflecting something about the economy? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm paying attention like we all are. Uh, we don't want to ignore the markets, but we also don't want to be overwhelmed and have that consume all of our discussions. So we pay attention to that. We pay attention to the data that came out this morning. Data is coming out every day. I know you have heard every Fed official say that we're data dependent, and I can tell you the truth. We really are data dependent. We watch all of this. We put it together. We use our, our best judgments. Harker, uh, Rosengren, uh, Kashkari over the last couple of days have all said maybe we should just wait a little longer and see what's going on uh, with the economy. Uh, Should markets be surprised if you did raise rates in March at this point? Well, I'm not going to forecast uh, what we're going to do. I think that if you look at our statement in January, it said that we are still expecting uh, moderate economic growth. We're still expecting inflation return to our 2% target over the medium term, and that would suggest, if that happens, gradual increase in interest rates. We don't have a specific timing in mind. We don't have a formula just saying this, you know, this meeting we're going to raise or that meeting we're not. We're just going to see what the data shows and then make the decision as close to the meeting as possible. What's the data show you now? Well, it's mixed. You know, I think since the statement came out in January, uh, there's probably been a little bit more downside in some of the data that's come out. But I don't want to prejudge anything. There's still more data to come. Ending too big to fail. I'll cut to the chase. Are you advocating the breakup of our top 
banks. I'm advocating a transformation of our top banking system. <clears throat> Breakup is one scenario that experts have proposed. Another scenario is you put so much capital in them, they turn them into okay, a utility. That's right where I want to go. Lord okay. Skidelsky in his Keynes, fabulous Keynes book of five, six years ago, Simon Johnson, 13 bankers, they all go back to June of 2004 and the increase of leverage. is the simple Kashkari prescription to reduce leverage more at big American banking. Well, that's, again, I don't want to prejudge it. We're, we've announced a process where we're bringing all the experts fair, together. Fair, and, and I then we're going to, for that. Right, and then we're going to look at it and come out with a, our recommendation at the end of the year. But that's a very reasonable approach. Look, the biggest banks are still, in my judgment, too big to fail. We have not finished the living will review process. And if we had multiple banks run into trouble at the same time, they would still get bailed out. Do you risk our international excellence in banking by transforming our too-big-to-fail banks? Well, I, I think other countries also have similar risks in their banking systems. And while we can't control what they do, we should start by at least making sure the U.S. economy and the U.S. financial system is resilient, and hopefully we can encourage other countries to follow. Uh, needless to say, the initial reaction from those in the banking industry has been very hostile to your comments, and I'm sure you're very pleased by that. Um, their arguments, well, they make many arguments, but one, of course, is that in a global interconnected world with mega corporations, you've got to have global mega banks. Yeah, I don't find that persuasive. The biggest American companies do business in countries all around the world, and they somehow manage to manage thousands of suppliers. So why can Boeing manage thousands of suppliers, but they can't handle a few more banking relationships? I don't find that compelling. The other argument is you make them hold more capital, then they have fewer funds available to lend, which has been shown to be a lie, but it's still a major argument out there. Well, no, I agree. If you raise a lot of capital requirements for the biggest banks, they will probably end up lending a little bit less. But we have a lot of banks in America. Small and mid-sized banks can grow and fill some of that void. You know, I hear from a lot of small banks in America who say they're getting caught in the regulatory net that's targeted at the big banks. Well, if we really did transformational right. measures on the big banks, maybe we could relax some of the measures on the small banks. You're going to do a symposium on this, et cetera. I urge you to have Michael McKee attend so he can ask smart questions. <laughs> uh, but, but within the symposium is the process started by one Gary Stern. Minneapolis has a certain culture, a certain fabric to its bank. Have your PhDs embraced your entering the door? I mean, an aerospace engineer with your background walks in. And the non-Keynesians and Keynesians, the Kutchler-Kota crew at Minneapolis goes, who is this guy? What's been the response to this first draft of your speech? The response has been great. You know, I'm spending a lot of time working very closely with our research department. We have a terrific team of experts in our banking supervision department, also in our research department. And I love working with them and tapping into their expertise. What I'm trying to do is bring the best ideas to the table be honest with the American people about where we are, and then move forward with serious proposals. Uh, Matthew Levine, who's a columnist for uh, Bloomberg, uh, writes, uh, makes an interesting point in his column today. Uh, you make the bank smaller, reducing the risk of one big, massive, one-off failure. But if there's a systemic crisis, it doesn't mean that smaller banks don't get infected and we have the same problem. Well, I agree. You know, If you took one giant bank and made 10 carbon copies smaller, uh, maybe you haven't done any, solved anything because if they take the same risk, they're still just as vulnerable as of all failing together. But look at the late 1980s. We had a thousand little savings and loans fail in the SNL crisis. There was it was devastating for them, but there was no risk of an economic collapse. 
When the tech bubble burst in 2000, devastating for Silicon Valley, no risk of an economic collapse. We need our banking sector to be able to make mistakes because they're all human without bringing down the whole economy or requiring a bailout. You're calling uh, for a study of this. You're not saying break up the banks yet. But if you were to make the banks smaller, how would you do that? Obviously, the investment banks didn't cause the 2008 crisis. So going back to Glass-Steagall isn't necessarily the answer for this. Right. It may be one way that some have proposed uh, to actually drastically shrink banks is to drastically increase capital requirements as a function of size. So that there are such strong incentives. There are some incentives now, and you've seen some banks shed some assets but in my judgment, right. it's not nearly enough. How do you respond? The cover of the FT this summer, I think it was, Mike, basically total paranoia and intellectual collapse in Europe that the European banks are falling behind the U.S. banks. How do you respond to people in New York who say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Well, it ain't broke. It, so they would have said that in 2006. You know, and when I went to Treasury in 2006, all the rage in policy circles was on capital markets competitiveness. Everyone was paranoid that our capital markets were stifled in 2006 by too much regulation. None of those really smart people, and I didn't see it, none of us saw the crisis coming. And so I don't find that argument persuasive. How do you react to uh, the the argument that the levels of capital that we require now and Dodd-Frank legislation about trading has reduced liquidity in the markets, and that is a systemic risk. Yeah, I don't see that as a systemic risk. It may have reduced liquidity, but I think the big big investment managers, whether it's Fidelity or Franklin Templeton or BlackRock or PIMCO, if they want to trade with each other, they can trade with each other. And so I I just don't find that convincing. You're not worried that if there's some sort of crisis, everybody rushes for the exit at once and there are no buyers? Well, no, but if there's some sort of crisis and everybody rushes to the exit, guess who's going to be rushing for the exit too? The Wall Street dealers. They're not going to step in if there's a real crisis and say, we're going to buy all the stuff you want to sell. They're going to run for the fire, run for the exits as well. What does it say that our regional banks are hiring warm bodies like Kashkari or Kaplan? You guys aren't ISLM theoretical monetary economists. What does it signal to the governors and to the president that the members of these regional banks are hiring someone like you? Well, I think it's saying that they want diversity of opinions. And that's literally, if you go back 100 years, when Congress created the distributed central bank, they wanted diversity. And when I went through the interview process, I can tell you what our board of directors in Minneapolis was looking for. They liked the fact that I had public sector experience, that I had private sector experience, right. uh, and that I had management experience. Let's see if you got the communication done quickly here. Are you going to move the dot plot of Kacha Lakota? Uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Very good. That's it. We're going to continue this interview if he doesn't walk out of the radio studio. He came here with an entourage of people. They're all wearing Minnesota Vikings uh, jerseys, and they all just no, went, oh, my God, he's never doing this show <laughs> again. We're going to continue with President Kashkari of the Minnesota Fed Futures Up 18. 910 on Wall Street. Let's check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. It is a battle between privacy versus security. Apple says it will fight a federal magistrate's order to help the FBI access information stored in an iPhone that belonged to one of the San Bernardino, California shooters. The magistrate ruled that Apple must supply the FBI with specialized software that can help hack into the encrypted iPhone belonging to Syed Farouk. Apple CEO Tim Cook says if it develops such software, it will put millions of other iPhones at risk. 
Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump says he agrees 100% with the courts that Apple should unlock Farouk's iPhone. Trump says we have to use common sense. German Chancellor Angela Merkel renewed her call for a no-fly zone in Syria to protect civilians. That suggestion was promptly rejected by Russia. Moscow says it can only be done with the Syrian government's consent. Global News, 24 hours a day. I'm Michael Barr. Mike Top. Michael, thanks so much. Futures up 18, Dow futures up 147. Stay with us worldwide. Neil Kashkari on America's Monetary Policy. Brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts with low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. We had some breaking economic news crossing the Bloomberg. Let's go to Vinny Del Judice with the latest. Vinny. Yes, Karen, from the Federal Reserve data on industrial production topping forecast up 0.9% in January. Factories alone putting in the best performance since July 2015. Earlier data on housing starts a decline to the lowest level in three months. Also earlier figures on producer prices, they were up. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinita Judice. Back to you, Karen. All right, thanks, Vinny. And futures are higher. S&P E-mini futures up 18 points. Dow E-mini futures up 151. NASDAQ E-mini futures up 47. 10-year Treasury down 13.30 seconds. The yield 1.81%. NYMEX crude oil up 3.5%, up $1.03 at $30.07 a barrel. COMEX gold, little change, down $1.10 to 12.07.10 an ounce. And the euro, $1.1111. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you very much. We're talking with Neil Kashkari. He is the new president of the Minneapolis Fed, and uh, we were just looking over the data on industrial production that crossed, and certainly uh, better than expected. Uh, interesting note in here, uh, manufacturing up half a percent, utilities up 5.4%, mining flat for the first time since August that we didn't have a contraction in mining. You represent the, the Bakken. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, is the worst over for, uh, for for the economy of that area in the mining industry? You know, we don't know. Uh, we have a number of things happening at the same time, which you're well aware of. We've obviously got the price of oil dropping. We've got the d- strong dollar. And in the ninth district, which I represent, we've got uh, the oil fields in North Dakota. We've got a agricultural sector. We've got mining and manufacturing. All of these are impacted by both oil prices and by the dollar. You know, one of the things... I've been talking about uh, systemic risk and too big to fail and how hard it is to see financial crises coming. Just look at the price of oil. A year ago, two years ago, nobody would have predicted. I didn't hear anybody predicting oil dropping to $30. And so I don't want to sit here and say we have a crystal ball and we know where the price of oil is going in the future. We just don't know. I mean, it can't fall forever, but we just don't know where it's going to go in the in the intermediate future. Well, the dollar and oil certainly pushed down on prices, and, uh, yeah. and we've had that issue, but then PPI today, you, you take out energy and it's up four-tenths right. uh, percent on a year-over-year basis, eight-tenths. Uh, are you confident that 
we have inflation in train, uh, that, that we are going to see the inflation people have been talking about for years? Well, what we have to do, uh, you know, our current expectation is over the medium term, inflation will return to our target of 2%. We have to keep bringing people into the labor force. And as we keep driving unemployment down, keep creating jobs as an economy, keep bringing, putting people back to work, that will, at some point, drive wages back up and drive inflation back up to target. And I can tell you that we're totally committed as a Federal Reserve system to the 2% target. The Phillips curve's not dead. Well, that's right. How'd you know that, Mike? Mike and I never know what we're going to go to next, and Mike just nailed it. They are aerospace engineer Kashkari working within the non-Gaussian reality of the investment world, has to walk into the model building of the Phillips curve. And within a broad sense, economic models where there's to be polite, as Vice Chairman Fisher would say, uncertainty. How do you adapt and adjust to the model debate within your Fed or the broader Fed as a whole? Well, you know, we, we talk about these issues. Uh, we have wide-ranging discussions. We push one another. I I try to look at things from a common sense perspective. If we if we keep putting Americans back to work, you know, at some people are they say, quality jobs though. I mean, well, your Fed Gazette writes this up beautifully every day. No, look, that's a, that's a second very important issue, Tom. I totally agree with that. But let's just stay with inflation for a second. If we put people back to work and drive the unemployment rate down, at some point that has to lead to wage growth, right? That's just first principles of economics. At some point, supply and demand that is going to lead to wage growth, which will lead to inflation, and the Fed is committed to that. But do you believe in a bimodal system? I mean, if Alan Kruger at Princeton is talking about inequality within a bimodal America, do you manage policy or advise or suggest on policy? Do you listen to your economists within a unimodal macroeconomics, or is it a bimodal to Americas? No, I think we have to look beyond just the unimodal world and look at the bimodal world and the different structures that are out there. And, you know, the Fed's tools are blunt. We can't directly affect income inequality, but we can talk, we can raise these issues to the American people so that the f- legislative authorities can understand what these issues are and they can see if they can take appropriate action. Spreads are widening. Uh, credit standards are tightening. Are you worried about credit availability to companies as they try to continue this expansion? Well, it's something we're clearly paying attention to, and there's a lot of focus on what's happening outside the U.S., right? For example, in China, et cetera. And one of the transmission channels from a slowdown in China to the U.S. is not just the the direct trade linkages. It's also what happens to risk premiums, what happens to the financial markets, the volatility, the availability of credit. So it is something that we pay very close attention to. Are you uh, seeing any signs of a problem at this point? Well, certainly in the last couple of months with volatility in global markets, volatility has increased, risk premiums have gone up. And so that is something that we're watching, and that could have an effect on the U.S. economy. I I don't think we know yet how big an effect it's going to have. What, uh, I have to ask you, what's your feeling about negative interest rates? It seems to be the uh, all the rage on Wall Street these days, but are there any countries you've seen where they actually work to stimulate growth or inflation? Well, this is, an on, this is a real-life experiment, that we're having the benefit of being able to watch what other countries are doing. Have you graced the presence of Art Rolnick yet? You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, have you passed the Rolnick test? <laughs> I, have, I have not. Art and I have not gotten together yet, but I've uh, learned so much wonderful things about Art. I'm looking forward to getting I mean, together with heritage, him soon. I mean, I mean, the heritage, just, just folks, for one thing to know, Minnesota, Minneapolis owns childhood education research. Because of Art I mean, Rolnick. Because Art Rolnick. Absolutely. You own it. Absolutely. Don't screw that up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> some Some people might. 
Some people will point out that that's uh, an interesting topic for the central bank to be weighing in on. My view is if it's important to the economy, then we should be thoughtful yeah, about I t- it. Yeah, I'll editorialize. Mike, you might slip in one more observation. Here. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think we're going to let Neil go here. He's, <laughs> he has been kind with his time. Uh, Neil Kashkari, the president of the Minneapolis Fed. Interesting proposition. We will be... We'll come out and uh, attend your uh, your hearings, uh, your right. symposia, when you uh, when you hold them and see you know where we go yeah. with the banking system from here. Uh, have you talked to Dan Terulo about all this? I'm looking forward to talking to him soon. <laughs> Thank you guys, really appreciate it. Neil Kashkari, he is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Uh, stay with us. Uh, green on the screen. Risk on futures up 16 worldwide and in Minnesota. Bloomberg surveillance. We're counting down to the opening bell brought to you by the refined Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland. It continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Jeep, the official vehicle of Killington Resort. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keen and Michael McKee, and the opening bell is brought to you by SEI. In the future, the asset management business will be profoundly different. Find out how SEI's global operating platform can help you navigate the new operational frontier at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks are higher at the open. The S&P 500 up half percent or 10 points to 1905. Dow Jones Industrial Average up four tenths percent or 70 points to 16,268. And the Nasdaq's up eight tenths percent or 35 points to 44.70. Ten-year Treasury down 11.30 seconds. The yield 1.81%. Yield on the two-year 0.75%. NYMEX crude oil up 1.6% or 47 cents to 29.51 a barrel. COMEX gold is little changed at 12.07.90 an ounce. The euro is at $1.1118. The yen 114.26. Tom and Mike. Uh, Karen, uh, thanks so much. The Dow up 90 points, as Karen mentions. Green on the screen, the VIX. No, there's a first print in the VIX. 23.40. I'd also point out sterling with a Brexit uh, weight, 142.42 is a weaker uh, cable uh, this morning. Never weaker is David Wilson with a look at the equity uh, markets this morning. David, what do you see in the land of equities? Well, we might as well start with Kinder Morgan. I mean, the shares are up 11.5% in early trading. The pipeline owner was added to the holdings of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway during the fourth quarter. Berkshire ended the quarter with 26.6 million shares, or a 1.2% stake. You've also got Freeport McMoran up about 5.5%. Billionaire investor Carl Icahn disclosed that he raised his stake in the mining and energy company last quarter. Icahn now has a 9% holding, making him Freeport's largest shareholder. Now on the earnings front, you've got Priceline Group up 10.5%. The largest U.S. online travel agency reported fourth quarter earnings that beat its forecast, as well as analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey. Revenue also exceeded projections. T-Mobile U.S. up about 4%. The wireless company's fourth quarter earnings and sales surpassed estimates. T-Mobile said it expects to add as many as 3.4 million new subscribers this year. On the other hand, Cerner, a healthcare software provider, down 8.5%. Their fourth quarter order bookings came up short of estimates. On the deal front, Staples up 3.2%. The largest U.S. office supply chain 
agreed to sell wholesale contracts to Ascendant for about mm-hmm. $22.5 million if its proposed takeover of rival Office Depot succeeds. Staples move is designed to overcome regulatory objections to the deal. Then you've got Terex up about 5.5%. China's Zoom line heavy industry said it received a letter of support from banks for a $3.3 billion takeover offer for the crane maker. Zoom line seeking to scuttle Terex's proposed merger with Finland's Kona cranes. Two more more equity equity ideas. All right. How about about Garmin up 8.5%? The navigation device maker's fourth quarter revenue beat estimates. Uh, So did Garmin's sales forecast for this year. And Fossil Group up almost 19%. The watchmaker's uh, fourth quarter earnings mm-hmm. topped estimates with the help of new brands and a new website. Uh, David Wilson, thank you so much. Lisa Bramowitz with us now as we look at bonds. And uh, it was a $23 billion Tuesday. I mean, we're going to talk about Apple, and I get all that. But I, 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 there, it's terrible, high yield. We're all going to die. And then Toyota, IBM, Apple, they all show up, and it's like, what do they do, make five phone calls? <laughs> well, first, let's put this into context, right? I mean, this is the busiest day in three weeks for investment-grade bond issuance. So for all intents and purposes, the market was pretty much closed for three weeks. Now, suddenly, companies are seeing an opening. Suddenly, the world doesn't seem like it's about to fall apart, and people are actually starting to sell bonds. I do find it compelling, Tom, to your point. Wasn't the world falling apart, but these guys can just sell whatever they want, can't they? Stop. I want you to explain how they quote-unquote sell. They literally make five phone calls, right? (laughs) It's not an exaggeration. The banks do not have to work too hard to get this stuff off the books. Because realistically, think about how many investors out there internationally, let alone in the U.S., want some yield, want a sense of safety. And if you look at Apple, I mean, think about how much cash they have. Think about, you know, what a fortress balance sheet they seem to have. $70 billion of annual revenue. I mean, this is not exactly a, a fragile company. And yet... It is interesting that the junk universe has gotten so toxic to investors, and yet investment-grade companies are doing just fine. Do you assume dollar for dollar that every bond dollar coming in goes back out within financial engineering to buy back shares, raise dividends? That would be awfully cynical. Would that be a cynical? Cynical Uh, as a C, so does Cupertino. I... The sort of mystic aspects of the bond market Tom is revealing. Um, I actually 100% agree with you because if you look at the companies that are raising cash through the debt markets right now, it's for general corporate purposes, which is another word for we can do whatever we want, and you guys are just going to deal with it. John, should we do a weighted average cost of capital on Wednesday? Well, let's see. We have three listeners left. That would whittle it down to one. Mike, just as a yeah. quick a quick view, weighted average cost, 10.9% equity, debt cost, 1.3%. What do you need to know? <laughs> well, uh, as one trader put it this morning, it's it's really sad to see Apple issue debt like this when they have all that cash overseas. The fact that our tax code forces them to do that is insane. Well, and it's not just the tax code, right? I mean, yes, this is partly because they don't want to repatriate uh, cash that's stashed overseas, but this is also, to Tom's point, to buy back their shares, to basically pad the pockets of their stockholders. No, 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 Mario Gabelli, take your head off for that. It's not a pad the pockets. It's a return on capital of profit. But is that an appropriate use? That's a debate. You know, I'm not going to answer the debate, but Mr. Gabelli would push against those that think it's 
bordering on criminal. I don't think it's bordering on criminal. I do think that the idea of borrowing from bondholders in order to pay stockholders feels a little off because it doesn't necessarily well, lead to an improvement <clears throat> in the fundamental business prospect of a See how she does that? She's more subtle, Michael. She brings in her beautiful Bloomberg Gadfly article, which you can perceive. I'll put it out on social in a moment. Buried in the bottom of it is the tragedy known as Hewlett-Packard, where the certitude of tech bonds, Michael McKee, evaporated into a higher yield and a lower bond price. I was just looking at that portion of this marvelous... Uh, <laughs> sort of like the King James Bible. I, I, I'm sorry, just, I haven't got the adjectives <laughs> and adverbs to keep up with Tom here. <laughs> the King James <laughs> Bible. You can find it in every hotel. <laughs> <laughs> you can find Bloomberg Gadfly. <laughs> in every no, hotel. In every hopefully, hotel. Hopefully they've eradicated no, We're going to stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> is this... Uh, is, is Apple the the camel's nose under the tent, or is this just a, a function of timing that they happen to lead the parade into this larger uh, output of, of bonds? Well, you know, the question is, can smaller companies, can companies that actually need to borrow, that aren't just taking advantage of the fact that mm-hmm. yields are still pretty low, are they going to be able to come to market? And, and really, the answer is, it All remains right. to be seen. Thank you, Lisa Bramowitz. And seriously, folks, Bloomberg Gadfly is a really valuable idea. You get 10, 12, 15 ideas a day. You're not going to read them all. You're going to pick a few, and one of them to consider is uh, two or three summaries on a, hu- a ginormous bond day yesterday uh, led by $12 gazillion by Apple uh, Computer. They've got other challenges this morning they're dealing with uh, unlocking their phones as well. Michael Barr has talked about that. As well, we're up 131.16,328. The VIX halfway back to average 23.49. Certainly a complacency over the last three, four days. Yen 114.27, weaker Japanese yen, really beginning to move away from the angst that we saw the last couple of days. Uh, pound sterling showing angst. Cable dollar 42.57 weaker. That's a Brexit angle there. Uh, as well. West Texas Intermediate, 29.68, up 64 cents. And uh, Brent crude, 33.15, up a good 98 cents, widening the West Texas Brent spread this morning. This hour of surveillance brought to you by Mazda White Plains. Visit MazdaWhitePlains.com. Here's Michael Barr with the latest news headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Donald Trump says he agrees 100% with the courts that Apple should help the FBI and unlock an iPhone that belonged to one of the San Bernardino, California shooters. Trump on Fox and Friends says to think that Apple won't allow us to get into the cell phone, who do they think they are? Apple says if it develops such software, it will put millions of other iPhones at risk. Technology analyst Rob Enderley. It creates a catch-22 for them. That they, one, they specifically made it so this couldn't happen. And if they are able to force, force it to happen, then they open all the phones to the same kind of attack, at least by a government-level entity. Four U.S. F-22 stealth fighters have flown over South Korea today in a clear show of power against North Korea. Passengers on two planes at the Detroit Metropolitan Airport had a moment. An American Airlines plane clipped a Southwest Airlines plane on the tarmac this morning. A passenger aboard American Airlines Flight 1241 says they were getting in line to be de-iced when the incident occurred. There was debris on the ground, and I turned and looked at everybody because, of course, there's 
weird noises and it's not a smooth ride at this point. And I just said, oh, my God, you guys, we are hitting this plane. I'm watching it. We're hitting it. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike. Oh, Michael, thanks so much. Curve steepening this morning, the 210 spread, that indicator of, uh, well, some would say potential recession, going the other way with optimism. Stay with us. Only optimism. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Fairleigh Dickinson University. Boost your career by getting CFP certified at FDU, named one of the great schools for financial planning. Classes begin February 23rd and 24th. Visit fdu.edu slash fp. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by National Realty. 30% returns on cash and rented real estate. Find them at NRIA.net. U.S. and European stocks gaining amid speculation that the recent sell-off was overdone as investors look past losses in Asian markets triggered by a weakening yuan. Crude oil is rising, and we check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 up 7 tenths percent or 13 points to 1908. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 7 tenths percent or 110 points to 16,305. NASDAQ's up 7 tenths percent or 31 points to 44.66. Ten-year Treasury down 11.30 seconds. The yield. 1.81% yield on the two-year, 0.74%. NYMEX crude oil up 2.4% or 68 cents to 29.73 a barrel. COMEX gold is up 3 tenths percent or $3.80 to 12.11.90 an ounce. The euro, $1.1135, the yen, 114.18. U.S. manufacturing output rising in January by the most since July 2015. The half percent advance at factories, which make up 75% of all production, followed a two-tenth percent decrease the prior month. And price lying among the best performer in the S&P 500 today, the largest U.S. online travel agent jumping as much as 16%. After reporting fourth quarter earnings at beat analyst estimates, it's now up 10.5%. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Thank you, Karen. Well, Tom, how's this for a prediction? Uh, Sasan Garamani, president of SGH Macro Advisors, sent a note out last uh, Thursday, I believe, saying that within hours he expected there to be an announcement of a peace deal uh, in Syria, a ceasefire, not a peace deal, but a ceasefire, and that that would be followed by a Russian-Saudi agreement on oil. Uh, very prescient. He did not okay. say that they would be cutting oil significantly or that there would be peace in the Middle East, but uh, those two things <coughs> were forecast ahead of time. So we wanted to bring uh, Sasan on and say, <laughs> well, if you got that right, what's next? Uh, where do you see all of this going from here, Sasan? Uh, hi, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on, and I, I appreciate the uh, the um, very uh, nice introduction. Uh, well, we think that the um, the 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 oil agreement or uh, the oil discussions now are a very 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 significant development for macro markets for oil markets. Uh, and if I, there's kind of one message that I would like your viewers to take away is that I think a lot of uh, what you are seeing and a lot of the skepticism uh, that you're reading about, you know, uh, sort of having a, an oil freeze between Russia and Saudi Arabia is, to a large extent, analysts, I think, are missing the forest through the trees here. And we are potentially, you know, on, on a, one of the, you know, bigger macro trades uh, of, the, of the year 
and one that impacts all markets, global markets. And the shift that occurred wasn't really um, last week. It actually started a little earlier in January uh, in Saudi Arabia. And that was essentially a, a subtle but very important shift. Uh, from the policy that they had vouched to pursue, uh, if everybody recalls at the uh, you know, 2014 OPEC meeting where they sort of pulled the rug out from under uh, oil prices and said that they are basically pursuing a maximum production policy and that they would not uh, sacrifice market share. Uh, to the quote unquote high cost producers, which, you know, people can interpret as Russia, can interpret as shale, can interpret as, as uh, all of the above, uh, causing the plunge in prices down to the levels that we've seen recently. Um, what happened is, is, is clearly the strain, uh, on, on finances, uh, among all of the oil producers, uh, in Saudi Arabia specifically, as well as in, in other countries. And uh, what has happened once we sort of reached this $30-ish level uh, in oil, I think, was a big wake-up call uh, for everybody to start to, to for the producers mm -hmm. to start talking among themselves and to see how they could tidy up the market. So it's a big, yeah. big shift. Sasan, you have such a heritage with your Iran attending a whole set of schools. Is the is the Offspring of, of, of a diplomat, the Anglo-American School of Moscow, Tehran International School, and the acclaimed American School of Madrid. What do we most get wrong about your Iran? Uh, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, I think what people get wrong most about Iran is that the, um, the Islamic Republic is a very pragmatic uh, leadership. And they are, it is a post-revolutionary leadership. You're in the second and third generation. And I think this is a, a, a holdover really from the 1980s, from, you know, from Khomeini, from the uh, very sort of messianic government that, that, that ran Iran at the time, that to one that has turned into basically a government that's really trying to protect its own self-interest and, uh, and is in a bit of a defensive position, quite frankly, economically, vis-a-vis -vis the world, and so on. And so, uh, you know, I have a very good friend, uh, Karim Sajapur, and I, I, I will borrow a quote that, that he Please. uses, and you may have spoken to him before, and he says that people think that the Iranian regime is... Uh, is, is suicidal, but it's not. Su it might be homicidal, but it's not suicidal. And, and I think this yeah. is business is business. That's what people miss. Well, some people have suggested that uh, the big issue, or one of the big issues of the next couple of years, is going to be the Iranian face-off with the Saudis in the Middle East. Yeah. Proxy war underway in Syria already. How do you see that playing out? Uh, that's that is a. There is already a proxy war, and, 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 and it's been going on for a long time, as I, I'm sure you're all aware. It's not just in Syria. It's in, it's in uh, mm -hmm. Yemen. Uh, and those are really kind of the big hot spots. You know, to a lesser extent, there's some skirmishes in you know, Lebanon occasionally and so on. But those are the two big hot spots. And um, what is happening now, the, 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 and, and I would say it's, it's, it's almost a hot war. People underestimate... Um, people are. There's been a lot of articles about the, um, you know, Hezbollah uh, involvement in, in yeah. Syria, but uh, the Saudis have been funneling an enormous amount of uh, of military 
uh, capability in, into into the region. And uh, what's happening there is that the the Saudi um, young uh, deputy crown prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, has, uh, I think he's overextended it a little bit, and, and this is one of the issues. And uh, the U.S. policy, to put it in a nutshell, on Syria is, quite frankly, to sort of try to extricate ourselves from the uh, from right. from the from the region. <clears throat> and so, what what we are seeing is, you know, the, the Saudis talk about sending troops. This is sort of the, 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 the biggest news that you've seen recently is, is there's been an escalation. Do, will you see the action to go with the talk? I, I think they're hesitant to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's limited. This is a, and, and there, it goes back to my earlier point that I think they are a little bit overextended. Uh, Yemen is a, you know, is a bog down in Yemen. And Syria, you know, quite frankly, the Russians are doing some mop-up right. operations on Aleppo right now. So <clears> the, the, well, the Saudis are hiding behind the U.S. on this. They're it, saying, we'll send it if there's a U.S.-led right, coalition. Right. Watch for that. Even if there's the carnage in supply and demand microeconomics of oil, Sassan Garamani, is there a geopolitical amount in the price of oil at $30 a barrel? Do you have X amount of dollars? Is geopolitical risk, or is that an analysis of another era? Uh, I, I don't think there is. I don't think we have a extra bid in oil right now because of geopolitical risk. I think it's actually maybe even a little bit the opposite. You know, we've we've put out these reports since January. We've, we've seen some bottoming of oil. Um, you saw some spike up off the lows. But I think there's a lot of skepticism, if anything, in the oil markets um, right now. And you're seeing that in the response to sort of these latest developments. What about Russia? What about China? What about Iran? Yes, yes, yes. But this is a long process. This is a confidence-building, trust-building process between big rivals um, and, and quite, quite frankly, enemies. Uh, but for practical reasons, and, and we are going into maintenance season, and, and I, I think it's uh, that we could their, their their objectives have been lowered. The Saudis, everybody would be more than happy to see oil at forty five, fifty dollar region now, and I see that as very, very plausible. I think we could we could okay. see that through the course of you know over the next right, right. few months. Actually, Sassan, thank you so much, Sassan Garamani, SGH Macro Advisors, particularly there on uh, the next marginal barrel, which I believe is heading out of Tehran uh, in a number of weeks. This has been a most interesting day. Thank you for your many comments on the appearance of the president, the newly minted president of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari. We got a lot of headlines out of that and really strong language from him on uh, a symposium, a, a careful, measured analysis that will be done by his Minneapolis Fed on our larger uh, banks. It certainly was an important speech at Brookings. Congratulations to David Wessel and Brookings Institution for really driving forward uh, this conversation as they have in the last uh, 48 hours. With that, we say good morning, <clears throat> Washington, Bloomberg 99.1 FM, Bloomberg 1200 Boston, uh, waking up 960 the Bay Area. Good morning, Corey and Carol on here in a moment. And, of course, Bloomberg 1130 in a gorgeous spring-like uh, New York today. I guess it's winter, but uh, it, it's certainly on the edge of spring as well. The market has that lift to it, up 135, 16,331. The VIX better, 23.54 in by 0.57 VIX points. West Texas Intermediate, fragile earlier, think 5 a.m., $29.68, up 64 cents of Brent crude, 33 06 a barrel. We are produced by YUN. 
Ken Fellio, our global technical director from New York. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. <laughs> 